first time this morning. I, I hope it speaks boldly about how much we love our kids. Amen? So uh, my name is Mike, and I'm the youth pastor here. And uh, Cody and uh, his family are uh, visiting in Africa uh, with some of their uh, daughter's families there and with a uh, ministry that Melissa, so Cody's our senior pastor, Melissa um, helps lead a, a ministry for pregnant moms in Uganda. And so they're having a wonderful time reconnecting with friends and with family and ministry partners. And it is so encouraging to get reports from Uganda from them while they're away. Um, the Busbies sent their love, and they so wish that they were here with us. Um, so as I'm being so um, subtly flagged down, uh, children are dismissed for Children's Church. Um, and I didn't forget. Don't worry. This was my plan all along. So children are dismissed to Children's Church. Uh, Children's Church is in the youth room today, so parents, in case you missed that memo for pickup, uh, pickup is in the youth room, not in the normal uh, room where Children's Church is, because that has been VBSified. So, um, all right, before I get myself in more trouble, <laughs> I should pray. <laughs> so, let's do that. Oh, dear Father, Lord, we, um, we come this morning with joy with confident expectation that you have a word for us this morning. And so, Lord, I pray that I would not get in the way, um, but that you would uh, preach your word to your people this morning through your holy scriptures. Uh, Lord, we call it the word of God because through it you speak to us. And so I ask that by uh, the power of your spirit that you would speak through your word and that you would draw us, whether for the first time or for the millionth, draw us once again to yourself. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Do you ever look around at the world around you and feel like the only Christian? Right, this is something that I've heard from many students over the years. Right, I think I'm the only Christian in my school. Um, and it can be overwhelming, right? especially in today's cancel culture to feel like you're always walking on eggshells, trying to speak the truth in love without causing unnecessary offense and getting yourself canceled and axed and ostracized. Speaking up about your faith is costly for all of us, Right? Uh, but especially for our teenagers among their peers who are the least religious generation that America has seen to date. Uh, but our teenagers aren't the only ones who feel this way, and today's generation isn't the first generation who has ever felt or experienced this. Right after the prophet Elijah had just performed one of the Old Testament's most famous miracles, he ran away, hid in a cave, and sulked. I mean, he had just gone toe-to-toe -to -toe against the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel, 
both groups of prophets, the prophets of Baal and Elijah, came. They built altars and placed a sacrifice on each altar. And the ones who would call to their God and the God who answered with fire to burn up the offering, that's who won. And so Elijah, being the gentleman, let the prophets of Baal go first. And so they hooped and hollered and they danced and they did all that they had to do. And Elijah's conclusion was, maybe you should try louder. Maybe Baal is asleep. Uh, maybe his hearing is, is failing. Maybe you should try, right? And so Baal did not answer. And so Elijah says, um, so fire, right? We, we need fire. So go get buckets of water. No, more water. More water. Pour more water on the altar. More water. More water. And then after the altar is soaking wet, what does he do? He prays to the Lord, and the Lord sends fire. So much that the altar is incinerated, and all the wet ground around the altar is dry land. God wins. God answers. And you would think that Elijah would be like, yes, my moment has come. God has glorified his name among these false prophets. Thus saith the Lord. Instead, we see one threat from the king, and Elijah runs away, hides in a cave, and weeps before the Lord, saying, I am the only one left. In this moment that should have been a great victory, he's left feeling isolated, dejected, depressed, and all alone like a failure. This is the background for today's passage in Romans chapter 11, verses 1 through 10. God's word reminds us that he is faithfully building his kingdom. Even when we feel all alone and we see zero evidence of what God is doing to continue building his church, even when it looks like the church is on the brink of death and extinction, God is still building his church. Amen? And so um, we are going to dig in uh, to Romans 11. It's on page 1005 in your pew Bible. Uh, it is not going to be on the screen. So I have some PowerPoint stuff. The text of Scripture is not going to be on the screen because I want you to have your Bible open, uh, whether it's paper or whether it's digital. I want you to keep your Bible open in front of you. Um, and so as we walk through the text, uh, we're going to read the passage kind of as we go our way through because it breaks down into a few very manageable and I think pretty clear sections. Uh, so we're not going to read it all in one fell swoop. We're kind of just going to walk through the text and then discuss uh, what we can learn from that afterwards. So Romans chapter 11, uh, he begins in verse 1, the first half of verse 1, so 1a. Um, 
Paul asks this question. I ask then, has God rejected his people? It's a simple question. Has God rejected his people? Has God rejected Israel? Why would Paul ask such a question? Right? Why, why would we possibly imagine that God would reject the people who he has made a covenant with? Uh, well, the religious leaders turned Jesus over to the authority, to the government leaders, and had him killed. Right? So um, Israel had killed Jesus. Uh, the faithful Jewish people were rejecting the gospel and even persecuting those who believed it. Remember, the Apostle Paul um, was a Christian hunter. He didn't change his name because he was ashamed of his former life when he was ministering and living among Jewish people. He went by his Hebrew name, Saul. When he was ministering among Gentile people, he went by his Greek name, Paul. Right? He, he wasn't ashamed and got a new identity. He was going by his name among the people of the language that they spoke. And so this apostle Saul was among them. He was a Christian hunter. He understood from the inside the deep rejection that Israel had against the gospel of Jesus Christ. When Paul was on his missionary journeys, he would go and he would preach the gospel first in the synagogues to the Jewish community. And what kept happening? Get out of here. You're not welcome here. You can't say that here. And so he'd get kicked out of the synagogues, and then he would preach to the Gentile audience, and people were repenting of their sin and placing their faith in Jesus Christ. They were finding life and hope. And so there were, there were some Jewish believers and there were some Gentile believers and they're trying to figure out how to be one big happy church family, right? Which can sometimes be difficult. And so Paul's asking this question in the letter of Romans. Guess where the people were who were reading this letter? in Rome, right? And so they're trying to figure out this Jewish-Gentile relationship of saying, well, you know, maybe we're the new Israel. I mean, I th we've probably heard that in different senses too. We're the new Israel. We're the new Israel. We're the new Israel. God is done with them, and he is doing a new thing with us. And, and Paul's saying, so has God rejected his people? And he emphatically responds, saying that God has preserved a remnant by grace. He continues in verse 1 through 6, saying, Absolutely not, for I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew, or don't you know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars, and I am the only one left, and they are trying to take my life. 
But what was God's answer to him? I have left 7,000 for myself who have not bowed down to Baal. In the same way, then, there is also at the present time a remnant chosen by grace. Now, if by grace, then it is not by works. Otherwise, grace ceases to be grace. And so Paul's answer is that all who are saved are saved by the grace of Jesus Christ, by believing in the proclamation of the gospel. There are not two paths for salvation, a Jewish one and a Gentile one. God has not abandoned his people in order to start something different. He says, absolutely not. There isn't a stronger way for him to say no than the way he said it here. Instead, he explains that there is a remnant. There is a remnant, a a part of a whole who is faithful. A part of a whole who is faithful, who has been called out by grace, and who continues to walk in faithfulness. You see, God promised in 1 Samuel 12, 22, the Lord will not cast away his people. Again, in Psalm 94, 14, it says, for the Lord will not forsake his people. He will not abandon his heritage. And then Jesus directly says in Matthew 5, 17 through 18, says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished." God isn't done with Israel. God wasn't just like, well, that was a project that didn't work out so great. I guess I'll just roll that up, throw it in the trash, and start, start again over here. That's not what God was doing. That's not what God does. God preserves a remnant from Abraham's offspring by grace. And he leads us to consider the example of 1 Kings 19, when King Ahab ordered the prophets to be slaughtered. Right In the aftermath of this conflict that we talked about earlier, the prophets of Baal are humiliated, but King Ahab is undeterred. He says, this was embarrassing, but we're just going to double down and go all in. And so he issues a decree, passes a law, to kill all the prophets of Yahweh, all the prophets of the Lord. And so instead of standing his ground because God has shown that he answers, I mean, in in this conflict, all Abraham does, or all 
All Elijah does is call on the Lord, and he sends fire. Would God not have protected Elijah if it came down to that? But Elijah ran. He, had, he was fearful of man for a good reason. There was a very real threat. It's easy to look down on people in the Bible and be like, why would they do that? If I knew what they knew, I surely would have done it. Really? Jesus rose from the grave, and we're terrified half the time. Right? So let's not get on our high horses about, well, if I knew what they knew, you know more than they know. And we still are tempted to live in fear of man, aren't we? And yet we see Elijah running and hiding in the cave, terrified. But God doesn't come, with him, come at him with lightning bolts and with a big slap in the face. Instead, God comforts and assures Elijah. He feeds him. He says, you're hangry, right? You're, Elijah, you're hangry. Eat some food. Drink some water. Take a nap. We'll talk afterwards. And then he says, Elijah, I have preserved for myself 7,000 in Israel. You don't know what I'm doing. I'm doing so much more than what you can see. You are not alone. So sure, among all of Israel... Those who called themselves Jewish, there were only 7,000. In the scope of things, it's a small percentage. It was a faithful remnant, a small group among the whole who were faithful and who had not bent the knee to Baal and who were called according to grace. But the enemy is not victorious. The prophets are not all dead. It might mean a season of spiritual darkness, but that doesn't mean there is no light. Paul elaborates on this by explaining this as a pattern that every faithful Jewish person could see in the Bible. He continues. He continues in saying, talking about Israel's hard heart. It says, what then? Israel did not find what it was looking for, but the elect did find it. The rest were hardened, as it is written. God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that cannot see and ears that cannot hear to this day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a pitfall and a retribution to them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see, and their backs be bent continually. Oof. Paul says that Israel, like you too, can't find what they're looking for. So, what were they looking for? They were looking for the fulfillment of their promise as children of God, that they were children of Abraham. 
And they longed for the promise, for the fulfillment of the promises that God gave to Abraham. It's important for us to remember what Paul says previously, right? Remembering this is a whole three-chapter section, and Romans 9 through 11 is making one concerted effort to talk about the role and relationship of Jew-Gentile Christians together. Has God abandoned his people? This is the, the continual refrain in chapters 9 through 11. And so previously he talks about how not all Israel is true Israel. And in this, he's drawing out this, um, this theological metaphor about the children of Abraham. And so how many children did Abraham have? One? Two? Two? Two, but one, right? So first, Abraham had Ishmael with Hagar when he took matters into his own hands and he had a son named Ishmael. But it wasn't with Sarah, who the Lord gave the promise to Abraham and Sarah that the promise to Israel would come through Abraham and Sarah. Instead, it took longer than he wanted, so he took matters into his own hands and had a son with, with Hagar and had a son named Ishmael. And then later had the son Isaac with Sarah. And so the promise of Abraham comes from the Lord through Isaac, not through Ishmael. And in this, in this portion of Scripture, Paul is essentially saying that you who are Jewish, who look to Abraham as your father, are children, not children of promise. The remnant are children of promise. Those who are not a part of the remnant are essentially spiritual children of Ishmael. And so, yes, you are a child of Abraham, Yes, you call yourself a Jew, but you are not of the line of promise. You are not a part of the remnant. And so here's where this comes out, and he's saying this isn't a new thing. Uh, Paul combines quotations from all the sections of the Jewish Bible, from uh, Deuteronomy uh, in the Torah, from Isaiah in the prophets, from David in the Psalms, from the whole Jewish Bible, uh, coming together in testimony affirming what Paul is saying here about Israel's hard heart of their rejection of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's arguing that their own Bible confirms what he's saying about a faithful remnant and about a hardening of their heart. It's not a new thing for God to preserve a remnant from among the wider group of those who consider themselves amongst God's people. And so, if the biblical witness uh, comes together to agree that not all Israel is true Israel, and that having Jewish blood pumping through your veins is not enough to make you a child of God, then what does it mean for God's people 
um, to believe? And what does it mean for those who claim to be God's people to have hardened hearts? It's a question for us of how can we be sure of our salvation? How do we know that we are in the line of Isaac or of Ishmael? And so we're going to be hearing more about God's continued plan moving in the future for, for Israel uh, next week. So next week, uh, one of our elders, Vincent Lefrieri, is going to be uh, preaching from the remainder of chapter 11, where Paul outlines and, and kind of shares and uh, works out a bit more of God's uh, salvation plan for, for Israel. But for us this morning, it, it's an invitation for us to fall on our knees in self-evaluation, not in insecurity, um, not in fear, but if not all Israel is true Israel, and God only saves a remnant from among Israel, then who are we to think that everyone who goes to church gets a free pass? Some Christians struggle their entire lives wondering whether or not they're really saved. Or if they've somehow lost their salvation by using up all of God's grace when they walked away for a period and then came back. Or maybe they're uh, struggling with some ongoing habitual sin that you've repented of but just continues to draw you and suck you into it. How do I know that I'm really a Christian? Around 70% of Americans consider themselves Christians. Did you realize that? 70%, that's a lot. We're a very Christian nation. And yet, when we just think about evangelical Christians, right, so those who, who self-identify as evangelical Christians, a third of evangelical Christians believe that religion is a matter of opinion, not truth. Nearly 50% of evangelical Christians believe that God accepts the worship of all religions, so long as you're sincere. And over 75% of evangelical Christians believe that Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God the Father, which is a statement that's been considered heretical since the 400s. Jesus was not created. Jesus is the eternal Son of God who took on human flesh on Christmas morning, but he was not created. Otherwise, he's not God. And so, I, I share these just to say calling yourself a Christian is good. Calling yourself Jewish, a child of Abraham, is good. But that doesn't necessarily make you a child of promise. So, if Paul is comforting the churches who are struggling to understand why the Jewish communities throughout the Roman Empire were rejecting Jesus Christ, while the Gentiles were repenting and receiving the Holy Spirit, 
some of us have similar struggles of wondering, why do I go to church and my friends go to church and those people go to church and we all say that we believe the gospel, we all say that we believe in Jesus, and yet those people are okay with um, these, these things that I, I don't think the Bible teaches, and these people say that Jesus will just save everyone, whether you believe in him or not, and I'm hearing this stuff over here from my, it's very confusing, right? Like, whose Christianity are we supposed to listen to? It can be very unnerving. Very overwhelming. So how can you be sure that you have genuine saving faith? Historically, the church has taught that there are three elements of saving faith, um, which are follow the acronym CATS, spelled with a K. Um, because who doesn't spell CATS with a K? Um, but otherwise, the acronym don't work. So um, the first is knowledge, right? There are certain things that we need to know about the faith in order to believe it, right? Who is God? Right? God is the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God is the Trinity. If you don't believe in the Trinity, then the God you're professing to worship is not the God of Scripture. The God that you, you worship as Christians is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He is a triune God. If you don't worship the triune God, you are not worshiping the God of the gospel. Who is Jesus? Right? What did he do? Right? Was he just a prophet? Was he like Hercules, like half God, half man? Was he God who just appeared to be a human but wasn't actually, just like a divine messenger? Who is Jesus? Or is he actually fully God and fully man, sinless, who died on the cross as a substitute for you, for me, to take the sin of the world on his shoulders as our substitute, so that we could be free of guilt, shame, wrath, and walk in freedom as children of God. Right? Our faith has content. I think sometimes we've reduced the, the theological element of things because we just want to focus on the gospel. And then kind of a generation later, now we have a whole bunch of people who profess to be Christians, and who profess to believe in the gospel, but their version of the gospel and what we read in Scripture isn't really the same thing because we've reduced down the theological core of what it means to be a Christian. Right? There are certain things that we need to know. Uh, the next element of saving faith is assent. Right? So it's not just knowing these things, but I need to give it my assent. I need to agree. Right? I, I wanted to change this A to agree instead of assent, because who says the word assent anymore? But historically speaking, theologians always have the word assent in here, and so I figured who am I to change the historic formulation. But you can call it agree. I won't tell on you. 
Um, so we need to know and we need to agree. We need to give it our assent. We, we agree these are the things that are true. And finally, we trust. Do I actually trust the gospel? Do I actually walk in a way that shows I trust God? Or do I believe God? I believe in God. I think God has some very wonderful things to say. But when God and I disagree, I'm going to trust myself. When God and I disagree, I'm, I'm going to think God knows more than me. I, I understand and I believe that um, God has a bigger picture than what I have seen. And so I'm going to trust him. I'm going to trust the heart of God that is proclaimed in the scriptures. That if God uh, loves so much that he gave his only son on the cross for me, then when God tells me to do this hard thing or to not do this thing that I really want to do, it's not because he's trying to ruin my life, coming from the God who gave himself for me. Do, do I trust him? If I don't, then I can agree with the gospel, but I don't believe it. I can agree with the gospel, but I'm not trusting in the God who the gospel proclaims. And this is part of the reason why our baptism and membership classes are more than just one short meeting. This is why it's a class that covers essential Christian doctrine. It talks about the spiritual disciplines. It helps you discern what trusting Christ in your life looks like and what that means for you in actuality, not just in theory. Because we want to make sure that uh, when we baptize you and when we welcome you into church membership, um, that you can be sure and confident in your relationship with Jesus Christ. I love this verse, John chapter 6, 37 through 39. Listen to the words of Jesus. He says, All those the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose none of all he has given me, but will raise them up at the last day. Jesus' hands aren't too weak to hold you. He doesn't grow tired or weary. Come to Jesus, call on his name for salvation, and you will be saved. And so here's a short explanation of the gospel that I've always found helpful. I don't remember where I heard it from, not original to me. Is to simply say, God saves sinners. Right? Simple. That's the proclamation, that God saves sinners. Who is this God? Right? And we break it down word by word. 
Who is this God? Well, he is the, the Trinity, right? The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The maker of heaven and earth and of everything in them. What has he done, right? God saves through the person and work of Jesus Christ, right? Jesus, who is fully God, fully man, gave himself on the cross as the perfect holy sacrifice and substitute for your sin so that the guilt and the wrath that your sin has earned would be poured out on Jesus Christ. But because he's God, he has the power to actually forgive sin and to conquer it, not just give in to it, so that you and I could walk with freedom, free from the shackles of guilt and shame. Right? God saves. And who does he save? He saves sinners. God saves those who confess their need for salvation, who put their trust in him. Knowledge, assent, trust. If we confess our sin and turn away from it, then, and we turn towards Jesus in faith, asking him to save us and make us new, God saves. But if we minimize our sin, if we excuse it, if we say it's not that big of a deal, I didn't mean it, you misunderstand. Let me tell you the full story. Oh, come on. I'm only human, right? Like, these things that we say about our sin, about our issues, instead, the gospel invites us in freedom to confess our sin. Not because God's up there doing this, but because he's up there doing this. Come to me. And all who come to me, I will not lose you. I will not drop you. I will not let you go. All who come to me, I will guard and protect, and I will save. God saves sinners. So whether or not you know that you're a sinner and you have never professed faith in Jesus, or whether or not you have been a Christian for as long as you can possibly remember, but you struggle with assurance of your salvation. I want to invite you to cats. To know the gospel. To agree with the gospel. And to trust in the gospel. Let this be a day whether for the first time or for the thousandth, let this be a day for you to find assurance of your salvation as a child of promise in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we, we ask that you would help us to, 
to know, agree, and trust this message that God saves sinners. What an incredible message. What an amazing promise. And so, Father, I pray for the days when we feel like, has God abandoned his people? Has God abandoned Israel? Has God abandoned the church? Why does it seem like the world is winning? Why does it seem like I'm the only Christian in school, at work, in my neighborhood, in my family? Why does it seem like I'm all alone? Father, help us to take courage in the way that you responded to Elijah and in the way that you have spoken to us through Romans 11. To know that you have saved, are saving, will save a faithful remnant of those who have not bent the knee to the bowels of the age, to the false gods, to the false gospels. Lord, help us to know who you are, to agree with the biblical teaching of who you are, and to trust you, the one who has conquered sin and death, and to remember that if Jesus has risen from the grave, then why should we fear those around us who spit out threats and anger and canceling uh, so freely? Lord, help us to walk with freedom, with confidence, and with peace, knowing that our God saves. We pray this in the mighty name of Jesus Christ. Amen.